0: take your your Bibles and find your way to Philippians chapter 4. We are at the end of Paul's letter and we have been going through an expository series in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi and we find ourselves this morning with the last uh, section of this letter. Paul's closing words to his ministry partners there in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony Uh, The the citizens of Philippi enjoyed the rights and privileges of being Roman citizens. And there was a church there, a Christian church, this little outpost of God's kingdom behind enemy lines. And Paul writes them this letter to encourage and instruct and equip them to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And so we find ourselves at this last uh, section of Paul's letter. And the the main topic of of this section is money. Actually, it's more than money. uh, The main topic is really the ministry partnership between Paul and the church in Philippi. His thankfulness, his gratefulness for their partnership, which included and was expressed by the church in Philippi through their financial gifts to support Paul in his ministry. So if you're a guest with us, I want to assure you that sermons about money are not common at Highlands Baptist Church. Um, We... Uh, are talking about money today because the text talks about it. And that is our aim and that is our approach to God's Word. We believe here in the authority and the sufficiency of God's Word. And that means that we aim to submit our lives to the authority of God's Word as we find it. And this morning we find ourselves in this passage, and God has for us uh, to examine our hearts and to be instructed by His Word about money. Now, just to set us up a little bit before we jump right into the text this morning, beginning in verse 15. The Bible says a lot about money. And it talks about money in a curious way to our modern ears. We often think of money as a good thing, a problem solver, a bringer of joy. And yet the Scriptures have a different approach to the topic of money. It has a stern approach, a sober approach. The Scriptures give stern warnings. For instance, in Ezekiel 28, God promises destruction for the king of Tyre when his wealth had caused him to swell with pride and to make claims that he was like a god. Or in Hosea 13, another minor prophet where the Lord reminds Israel that when he fed them in the wilderness, they became kind of fat and proud and in a way forgot him because of the plenty that they were enjoying. And the teaching of Jesus on wealth or on money is rather stern. Jesus pronounces a woe on the rich and a blessing on the poor. And this was so countercultural in his day that people that heard this were just kind of flabbergasted. In Luke 6, it says this, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And later on he says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And Jesus taught that the wealthy... Will only enter the kingdom of God with great difficulty. In other words, wealth exposes you to spiritual risk. In Mark 10, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, "How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God." And the disciples were amazed at his words. And just to put a pin there, because often we perceived and like the readers, you know, the, in the contemporaries of Jesus and in his day when he was walking here on earth they would perceive wealth and prosperity as a blessing from God, as a sign of God's blessing and prosperity upon them. And Jesus is saying, now it's very difficult if you are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Where the assumption was, if you're wealthy, you must be part of the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God! Exclamation mark! It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, does this mean wealth or money is evil? No, it does not mean that. In fact, some people in the Bible were wealthy and were described as righteous all at the same time. For example, you have Abraham, Old Testament character, or Job, another Old Testament character, wealthy and righteous. In the New Testament, Jesus' ministry with his disciples was supported by some wealthy woman. In Luke chapter 8, you read about that. Uh, In Acts 16, when Paul is traveling and planting churches, he meets a woman named Lydia who was a businesswoman from Thyatira who was in Philippi at the time. And she comes to faith in Christ and immediately desires to support and get financially involved in supporting Paul's gospel ministry. So why then does the Bible speak so sternly and so soberly about wealth, about money? Why do we kind of squirm when this topic gets brought up in the Scriptures? Well, part of the reason is discovered in what Jesus taught about the potential power of money. And you find this in Luke chapter 16. There's a cross-reference of this in Matthew chapter 6. When Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so what Jesus is doing here, he personifies money. As if... He, as if it can be a master in our lives. In other words, according to Jesus, money is so powerful, it's powerful enough to sway and to pull at our allegiances and our loyalties so that Jesus knew that it could kind of take the de facto place of acting as if a God in our life. And he warns against that. Money can kind of take on a divine status in our life. And I think we see that expressed in our society today and our culture today. We feel those same pressures pushed upon our own hearts as Christians in this modern day America. Many people will bow down and sacrifice to the quote unquote God of money or of wealth by sacrificing happiness, their children, their health, fill in the blank for the Almighty Dollar. First Timothy six, again, it points to the issue. It's not is not really the issue, is not money. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes and says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. There is the powerful mastery that money can have in our lives. And what's the result? And pierce themselves with many pains. So I share all of this just to give us a biblical snapshot, a framework of money, because our modern thinking about money may be quite different than the Bible's approach to money. Our thinking about money should be informed and shaped by the Scriptures. We are Christians. And as a Christian, we should be aware of and cautious then about money's ability to gain the upper hand in our life. That's, that, that's possible for any one of us here. None of us are exempt from that. But the problem isn't with money. Again, we need to understand the problem lies within us, that we can start to love money and start to worship money and serve money so that it becomes, as Jesus said, a master. So then how should Christians relate to money and use money today? What is the way forward? How can we safeguard ourselves and heed the warnings of Scripture about it? Philippians 4 gives us a roadmap for that. It gives us an example of the wise and appropriate use and and relationship towards money. And the first truth that we find about money in Philippians 4 is that financial support or financial giving is part of gospel partnership. That's what Paul is writing about beginning in verse 15 down into verse 16, actually through this whole section. He's writing about the partnership that the Philippian Christians had with him through their financial gifts. They began their support back in the early days of the advance of the gospel in that region. That's what he's talking about there in verse 15. About They, they know that in the beginning of the gospel, when he left Macedonia, he's just commenting how they stood apart in their partnership with him through giving towards the advance of the gospel in that region. So what does the relationship, and why do we really care about the relationship between Paul and the Christians in Philippi? I mean, we're living in modern-day America, so I'm glad that they had a kind of a good thing going, but so what? What does that have to do with us today, living in our present-day situation? Well, for starters, verses 15 and 16 show us that there is an inseparable link between financial support and gospel partnership. One of the ways that we are partners in the gospel is through our financial support. Paul is highlighting their partnership in these verses. He's thanking them for their partnership in these verses. And it was partnership from a distance, but it was partnership that mattered. It was tangible. It was real. They were giving to the support of Christian ministry. They were giving to the advance of the gospel from their own pocketbooks, and that made them partners in Christian ministry. Which, think of it this way. Just having a, a desire for the gospel to advance is not make you a partner in the gospel. Having wishful thinking about the gospel advancing, I mean, that's good, but what does partnership actually look like? For the Philippian Christians, it looked like in this one way of giving to Paul to enable the advance of the gospel. Now, here's where the rub comes to us. We live in a culture that is largely, and, and, and we feel the pressures of this in our own lives as Christians, that is largely consumer. We are a consumption kind of society. Now, not entirely, all right? But that is kind of the default that we kind of go towards. We are looking for, what, for our needs to be met, and we have this idea of for us to be able to consume. The challenge is it's possible then as a Christian to behave more like a consumer than a partner. So a question then for us as we press this text into our own lives is which one are you? A consumer of the gospel a consumer of religion, and I say religion not in the sense of just organized, dusty religion, but are you just a consumer coming on a Sunday morning, sitting and receiving and consuming and then leaving, or are you a partner? Again, Paul uses terms of partnership here in in the text. In verse 15 he says, No church entered into partnership with me. and then he defines the partnership he has in mind in giving and receiving except you only. So again, Paul doesn't view the Philippians as customers of the gospel. plan of the church, they're thankful, they're saved, they're redeemed, and they're, they're, they're trying to spread the gospel in their region, but they are partners. How? Through their giving. He views them as partners. How does God view you? We likely have all sorts of reasons why we might not give, why we can't give. In fact, the Christians in Philippi could have used those same reasons, right? We're creative in how we rationalize our use of money, aren't we? I am. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul, through Paul's pen there to the Corinthians, we learn that the Christians in Philippi actually had legitimate reasons not to give. They were not wealthy. They were not well off. They were in a period of, of hardship, it seems. And Paul references the behaviors of the Christians in Macedonia, which included Philippi, and he lifts them up as an example to inspire the Corinthians in their own habits and patterns of giving. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And that includes Philippi, that, that region there, modern-day Turkey. For in, at a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, right? Yikes, right? What? Have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. <laughs> it's just the upside-down way that the gospel works. I mean, these people were in affliction. There was a sense of poverty. But it overflowed in this expression of generosity. Now what's curious here is no amounts are given. The amounts that are given is not really the issue at at stake here. The issue at stake here is that Paul says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. It was a willing, joyful expression of worship to God, in partnership in the gospel, to see the gospel advance in these regions. And there's, these are people that had reason to say, you know, I wish I could, but I can't. So I'd like to challenge all of us in our modern-day American sensibilities about money to be challenged from the Scriptures and just to assess our own hearts. I have no idea what anyone in here gives or doesn't give. I have no clue. Not at all. That is entirely between your conscience and God. But I would ask us all to examine our hearts and ask ourselves, do, do you have more of a customer approach or a partner approach? Do you kind of like to be a spiritual ninja, kind of consuming the gospel alone, on your own, and and you simply appear on a Sunday and then vanish back into your own private life, but you're glad to be able to come and gather with the church on Sunday and participate, in that sense, consume, but to actively join as a partner in gospel ministry through financial giving, oof, means you're going to have to say no to other things. You're right. But I would encourage you, if you are not giving, to consider how God would increase your joy through becoming a financial partner in the advance of the gospel. And if you are giving, take heart, because I think this text will encourage you in that faith-filled step of obedience. Because giving in gospel partnership, if you're skeptical about it, like, how dare Paul talk to me about my money? I worked for it. I earned it. I sacrificed. I saved it. How dare he suggest how I should use it, right? Well, before we jump there, really, Paul isn't interested in your money and God isn't, inter- isn't interested in your money. He is interested in you and your heart and your worship and enjoyment of Him. Now remember, Jesus talked about how money can kind of have this role in our lives where it can kind of almost function as a master. And it's impossible to serve God and money as masters. So what, how is Paul then interested in their well-being? Well, if we look at verse 17, that's where he wants to really make sure that the record is straight. He wants to clarify. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And to make certain that he isn't misunderstood or perceived as money grubbing, Paul clarifies his motives in verse 17. And this teaches us that financial partnership is not just a way that we, we get involved in gospel partnership, but financial partnership second... Financial partnership in the gospel has spiritual reward. It has a spiritual reward. So in verse 17, Paul wants to make sure that none of his readers think he's using ministry as a cover for personal financial advancement. That is now what's happening. Instead, he is thanking them for their, for their partnership in financial giving because he is interested in the welfare, the spiritual welfare of these partners with him. That's verse 17. So what does he mean when he says, he seeks the fruit that increases to your credit? Well, the term that Paul uses there in that verse is a reference to earning interest. It's a concept that we're familiar with. So you have money into an account and you want to see what kind of rate of interest you're going to get in that money. Maybe you're rather disappointed in the rate of interest that you're getting on that money in your account. Paul's using this, this, uh, this analogy of money in an account earning interest He's using that as an analogy in the money that they have given to the advance of the gospel. That is, in a spiritual sense, earning interest. He assures his readers that what they give would function like an investment spiritually. And the return on their investment is reinvested in them in their spiritual growth and advancement. That's what he's writing about. He's not interested in their money that they had sent for him for personal reasons or for his personal advantage. Instead, Paul is most interested in the Philippians' spiritual advantage through their giving. So we can understand it this way. These Christians who gave, their giving was a concrete demonstration of how God was completing the good work that he had started in them when they believed the gospel to begin with. If you look back, flip over a few pages or flip up a few screens to chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 6, where Paul is certain, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now here at the end of this letter, Paul is connecting the sense of, listen, Christian, I'm so thankful for your giving because God is using your giving to return an investment back to you spiritually that is for your spiritual progress, for your spiritual growth. So what this means for us in practical terms today is that your financial giving for the advance of the gospel is one of God's ordained means of bringing about spiritual growth in your life. It's one of the means that God uses to grow you spiritually. It's not the only means, but one of the means. There is a link According to Philippians 4, the way Paul is writing this this thankfulness to them, there's a link between how you use or don't use money for gospel good. There's a link between that and your spiritual fruitfulness, your spiritual growth. There is a compounding kind of interest that you will only experience spiritually when you give to support and advance the gospel. Now, we get this, right? You will not have a return on an investment that you never invest, right? I mean, this is obvious for us, right? I mean, if an account says, we'll give you this much percent back on whatever money you put in here, you shouldn't scratch your head and say, well, why have I got nothing when you've put nothing in, right? We get that. Paul is using that analogy here. These Christians have invested. They've invested and Paul assures them that their investment is going to reap benefits not just in the advance of the gospel, yes, but they're going to reap a spiritual blessing through the way God uses that to grow them in their knowledge of Him, in their enjoyment of Him, in their spiritual progress of faith. And so, remember, the man who wrote this truth about giving here in chapter 4 is the same guy who wrote in chapter 1, verse 25, that he was laboring for their progress and joy in the faith. And so, again, if you feel like, hey, Paul, you know, leave me alone. You can talk to me about my attitude and my actions, sure, but you don't talk to me about my money, Paul. Well, that's the same guy who is writing to these Christians and said, listen, I am dedicated to your progress and joy in the faith. And part of our progress in joining the faith has to do with how we handle our money. So, when you give to the advance of the gospel, when you give money to Highlands Baptist Church, part of that money is used to advance the gospel here in Denver. Part of that money is used to advance the gospel in places like Peru, which we heard this morning, and other areas and regions around the world, advancing the gospel in places that you you and I can't go to and can't do that. You're advancing the gospel. But more than that, there is a compounding interest of spiritual fruitfulness that God is accomplishing in your life through the giving. Maybe you think you can't give much, so why bother? Does it really matter? Well, that's a pragmatic view of giving, not a scriptural view of giving. The scriptural view of giving is give, even if it's a little. I mean, Jesus extolled the, the generosity of a, of a widow who gave two mites, and it was... It was in comparison to the vast amounts of wealth that were being given publicly as, with showmanship by others. And Jesus applauded that small, simple gift from her and it was a lot for her. It was everything, Jesus said. The amount isn't the issue. It's the heart behind the giving. So give even just a little because there is a confidence of saying, God, as I give, you can be assured that there is a compounding interest of spiritual growth, a progress of faith that God will accomplish in your life through that. Now, there are other reasons to give. And Paul goes on to that in verse 18. Financial partnership, not only is there a personal financial or a personal spiritual interest, compounding interest of growth in our lives, but third, financial partnership is pleasing and acceptable worship of God. It's pleasing and acceptable worship to God. I don't know what kind of ideas you have about worship. Maybe you think worship is the only happens Sunday mornings like this in a service. You're going to go worship God. And that's true. We've worshipped God. We have. But I'd like to dispel any of us of the notion that worship only happens on a Sunday morning when we're gathered together in this building doing churchy things. All right? Now, worship has been happening this morning, yes. But it's not only on a Sunday. Your whole lives, our whole lives should be worship of God. I mean, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that our eating and our drinking should be to the glory of God. That's worship. And I hope that we understand, and again, this is a topic for its own sermon series, but what you do in your daily work, whether you're a plumber or an electrician or you're you're a receptionist or whatever the, the role that you have in your work, that is worship to God too. It should be. Also, how we handle our money is is has the power, has the ability to be acts of worship. Now, if we tie this back into what Jesus warned about money, when he says, listen, you can't serve two masters, money and God. One of them is going to be your master. You start to understand then how how we handle our money can actually be acts of worship to God or to the God of money. Did we get that? So what he does in verse 18 is he wants to encourage these Christians. He's giving them kind of this, um, th- this amazing thank you note. Uh, for instance, have um, you ever had somebody do something for you or give something to you or help you out in a way and the words thank you just didn't seem like they were big enough to contain the gratefulness in your heart for what they've done? You ever had that happen where you're writing a thank you note and you're like, man, a thank you just seems so simple and silly to, to how significant what, 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 what you received actually was? It's almost as if Paul is kind of doing that here in verse 18. He's giving them a verbal receipt. Uh, When he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. I mean, he's giving them kind of a verbal receipt. He has indeed received it. Then he says, uh, he received it from Epaphroditus, the gifts you sent. And then he described it this way, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, he is describing their financial gifts as a fragrant offering. And I don't think that means... It obviously doesn't mean that they kind of misted a little bit of fragrance on it and, you know, sent it on with Epaphroditus. And Paul in prison smelled that, and I imagine prison didn't smell so good, and prison he didn't smell so good. And it has nothing to do with that. It's an analogy to the Old Testament, the way ancient Israel worshipped God through the, 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 the ceremonies of Old Testament sacrifice, the sacrificial system. The sacrifices were part of Israel's worship of God. It's how they approached and related with God. And it was all pointing to the full one-time sacrifice of Jesus. And Paul connects to Philippians' giving as an act of worship that is acceptable and pleasing to God, like the sacrifices of ancient Israel were acceptable and pleasing to God. Aromas are powerful things, right? Um, So spring here, are you familiar with the trees that fake you out around here? Right? They They have white, I think they're white flowers, and they look beautiful. And you go up to the tree and... To sniff the tree, and you smell these trees—they are awful. I mean, they are awful. It's like puke on a tree. I'm, if you haven't experienced it, then you'll discover it. But right, I mean, this kind of the the, the 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 fake out there. I mean, aromas are powerful. You've had that, right? I mean, we had this happen in our home, and this is an embarrassing story. It's, um, in Florida, there was an awful smell in our garage, like rotting death, and I looked everywhere for it. Everywhere I could not find it anywhere. And as time went on, it got less and less. And it eventually went away. Problem solved. Well, when we went to sell the house, we got up in the attic. And we found that um, there was uh, evidence of a rat that had died in our attic. And it had rotted up where we couldn't see it and was just this dried, dusty piece of rat leather at that point. Um <laughs> Aromas are powerful. Now imagine when, like, have you ever walked into a model home and there's like this aroma of like chocolate chip cookies in there or maybe it's not great and you're, man, it just makes you want to buy the house for the smell of cookies. I'm trying to, I'm using this and I'm trying to help us imagine a little bit of what's going on here because we kind of glance over these phrases in regards to sacrifice that's acceptable to God, this pleasing aroma, because it's puzzling to us. Because the aroma of a sacrifice burning Burning a sacrifice, an animal, that does not seem pleasing to our sense of smell at all. And so we almost kind of discount it. And what's, what, again, God is not like, He doesn't have a nose, right? I mean, there's, there's these analogies that are drawn to help us try to understand God in our own human awareness, but it's not like God has a nose and He's kind of leaning over the, the, the portholes of heaven. Sniffing this, the burning sacrifice. That, that's not what's happening, but the acts of worship of Israel giving from their possessions, from their herds, from their own resources, and sacrificing. It's consumed in the flames, entirely dedicated towards God to an, an, an expression and an admission of His rule and His reign and His ownership of all of them, of their whole being, personality, all of their wealth, Right? that sense of worship to God, that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And here's how Paul links it. He says, Philippians, I want to say thank you, but really, if Paul is thankful, it doesn't really matter. Here's what matters most. God sees. God notices. God is grateful for what you've done. That's the best thank you that they could ever receive. It's not like, Paul, are you, did you get enough? And Are, are you pleased? And are you, are you happy, Paul? Paul says, listen, I, I received it. Full payment. Epaphroditus gave it to me. Thank you, but listen... What you gave, what you did, is an acceptable, pleasing sacrifice of worship to God. God's pleased. So it's like Paul's thank you is this little, little postscript to this big expression of God is grateful. God is pleased. He's received what you've given as an act of worship. And that's what he's doing there in verse 18. So financial partnership in the advance of the gospel through our giving is one way God's people worship God. And that's what happens, right? One of the best ways to keep money from taking control of our lives is to give it away. And by the way, this isn't the only time the New Testament writers connect our giving as an act of worship to God. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, verses 15 and following, he says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So by the way, when we were singing, when we were praising God earlier today in the service, that is another way that we worship, a sacrifice to God. And you might be thinking, well, you didn't hear the person next to me. It didn't sound so great. Again, really, I mean, all of us on our best day, I mean, you pick your favorite vocalist. God's not like shocked at their talent. God's the creator, right? It's an expression of praise, but the author of Hebrews keeps going, and he says, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. That's the idea of financially giving. Why? For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's the motive behind giving. It is pleasing to God. Now this pushes back against the whole health and wealth prosperity gospel, right? You want God's blessing? Give, give, give. You'll secure a blessing from God. If you're not getting blessed, it's because you just haven't had faith enough that, that you haven't given enough because God wants you to give more. and So you just keep giving, giving, and you'll have this prosperity and wealth and health. That is devilish. That is not the Bible. Here's, how we, here's why we give. Because it's pleasing to God. The Philippian Christians gave. You know, it cost them. It was hard. They were in affliction. It was even a sense of poverty, some of them could say. And they gave. Why? Because they knew it was an act of worship to God. Pleasing to God. So remember, Jesus personified money as if it could be a master in our life. He warned us about money could have a godlike status in our life. And so one reaction to that, to that risk, to that warning, could be, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with money. Money is evil. Money is bad. Take it away. Let me live in poverty because I don't want to be running the risk of having that happen in my life. And that's one reaction to these types of instructions, but it's not a Christian reaction. That That is a moralistic type of response to that kind of warning. Christians don't despise money. Here's how Christians respond. Christians don't refuse to use or engage financial transactions. Instead, Christians use money in radically different ways. How? We use it by giving it away. We're weird. We are. I mean, everybody else in the world is trying to save up as much as humanly possible. Trying to, trying to get as much as possible. And Christians, we're weirdos. What do we do? We, we look at the God of money and we kind of laugh at it and say, you can't give me, you can't fulfill my life. You, you might buy pleasure for a little bit, but it's not really the pleasure that satisfies. You don't bring satisfaction to my soul. And here's how I'm going to prove it to you, money. You give it away. And what God does is God is so grateful in that what He does is He uses that investment to accomplish in your own life spiritual growth. Because what you're doing is you're expressing faith. You're stepping out in faith saying, God will supply my needs. And that's where He's going to go to next. Philippians 4 shows us that one of the ways Christians guard themselves from the deceptive tendency of money to take the place of God in our lives is we give it away. Now, instead of worshiping money, we give money away to worship God. So, you might be wondering, okay, uh, that sounds great, Paul, and I'm glad it worked out for the Philippians, but money doesn't grow on trees. And you don't know what's in my bank account. And you don't know how... uh, You don't know the other costs and and expenses and the risks that, that you're living through. You're right, I don't. And again, the amount isn't the issue here. Nowhere in any of this instruction is the amount brought up. It's not. You say, well... How am I supposed to be able to give to the advance of the gospel when I don't think I really have what I need? Well, herein lies the center of our act of worship. Look at verse 19. Paul assures them, as they step out in faith-filled obedience, he says, My God will supply every need of yours. And he qualifies how God will supply, according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, the riches and glory in Christ Jesus make the world's wealthiest people seem like, uh, make them look like they're in poverty. Verse 18, we're told how the Philippians supplied Paul's need in full. Now, in verse 19, Paul assures them God will supply their need in full. Now, this isn't a promise that God will provide for their every want or their every greed, right? And greed is such a hard thing to pin down. It is. Um, It's so elusive. I find it difficult in my own heart even to pin it down because we can always look upstream or downstream from ourselves, right, financially. Wherever you are in your financial situation, you can always look up and say, well, they got way more. And you can always look down and say, they have way less. And so it's really hard. You can always kind of just wiggle away from letting the scriptural warnings of greed take part. So again, the issue is, Well, How do we assess that? Well, are you a consumer or are you a partner? Are you understanding the relationship between your giving and your growing in the gospel? And you have this sense of joy of, I'm going to give this away as an act of worship to God? And then how can you be assured that you're going to have what you need? Because God will supply your every need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here's where the rub, though. Sometimes, oftentimes, we are misinformed about what our needs are. Right? sometimes we can be we can be misinformed we look at life through our little lens our little snapshot of however long we've been alive and we think god this is what i need and there may be truth into it in some degree some from our perspective but god god has a much different perspective so people who can claim verse 19 by the way right I know you've heard it, name it and claim it, promise, verse 19. If you want verse 19, if you want to be assured and comforted by that, you are only eligible for verse 19 to be a ministry and a comfort to your heart if you are giving as acts of worship to the advance of the gospel yourself. Here's the danger. We as Americans can say, God, give me what I need, give me what I need, so then I'll be able to give. And God says, I will will supply your needs. Give, worship me, God says. Advance the gospel. Experience the compounding spiritual interest of growth in your life and your progress of faith. And God will supply your needs. And this is one of the ways God displays his glory, how we display God's glory. When we give money away and we trust that God is able to supply our every need. We're weirdos, right? Christians are weird. We don't look at ourselves as we are the ones that provide for our needs. Now, God often enables us and gives us skills and health and ability and jobs. God provides all of that so we can provide for our needs, right? There are legitimate needs that we need money for. But in all of that, what matters in all of this is God's glory. That's where he's going in verse 20. You see that? All this is driving, what? To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's where we collide. Our modern American sensibilities can collide because we like to use money for our glory, for our gain, for our fame. And Paul is driving all of this in his thankfulness to these Christians who gave to him. Listen, their giving and his receiving, all of this is for the glory of God. So that's another way we can examine our hearts for greed. Do we see our money as a way to enable us to make much of God, to glorify God? Or do we see money as a way to satisfy our wants, our needs, our desires. And we'll try to figure out how to fit God in there some way in the future, somehow later on. That's not Christian. I'll ask the music team to come up and uh, get ready to lead us in our final final hymn. The final few verses, though, verses 21 through 23, as we conclude. He closes out with a customary Postscript: when he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Here is just another closing encouragement when he writes to them about giving. Another closing encouragement about the unity that God's people should enjoy. Every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. This sense of family, of this bond that they share with one another, even though they're separated in different cities. And Paul in prison, nonetheless. How they enjoy this unity. And then he points out, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. I just find it so, uh, this, this last little phrase that Paul adds on here, just kind of as a, oh yeah, by the way, one more thing. That they're giving to advance the gospel ministry of Paul's gospel ministry. God has used it in remarkable ways so that when it says Caesar's household, does that mean that Caesar's son had come to faith in Christ. The word household is a pretty elastic term there in the, in the New Testament. It really refers to, it could refer to as simply as anyone in the employ of Caesar's household, um, what was happening in Caesar's household. Not the, the whole government, the whole nation, but Caesar's household itself. Anybody who was in employment of Caesar in that way. And there were some on Caesar's payroll, think of it that way, that had come to faith in Christ. And they are now saints in Christ. And they are now, in a way, participating in this, in this greeting that Paul is writing here when he finishes out the letter. I think it's just amazing. Sometimes we might think that what we, we give financially, like, does it really matter? Now how can God use five bucks? How can God use, you fill in the blank, it might seem like such a small amount. Does it really, any, is it, it doesn't have any significance. And in that sense, right, God doesn't need our money. Right? I mean, really. I mean, the God who makes Solar systems that are hundreds of millions of light years away from us. Does, does he really like worried about getting another 10 bucks from you? No, he's not. All of this though is to what point us to verse 23 the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That's what enables giving grace. When you know Jesus in the way of having been redeemed from your sins and saved from condemnation and been given an eternal home of enjoyment with God forever, there's a grace and a riches in Christ that mean like, you know, how much can I give? God, would you have me give more? Can I trust you? Maybe that, maybe that changes because of the way your income is changing. That's okay. But God is giving you the riches of Christ. And that's where Paul ends. The grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I just want us to remember that as we think about our giving. Let's not try to be outdoing each other in a sense of self-righteousness. No, that's not worshiping God. That's worshiping self. Let's remember that we give entirely because of God's grace in Christ Jesus. That's how we were able to gather this morning to sing and worship. That's how we had the health to gather this morning, the strength to gather, the ability to give anything ever. It's grace. Let's close in prayer.